I will say, I think that one of the most universal principles is that innocent people should not be in prison. And so perhaps I'm speaking out of turn here, but I think it's not hard to be interested in wanting to remedy some of the most serious problems in the criminal justice system. So for me, it just made sense. I think a lot of people are just so grateful to have somebody actually take them seriously. It takes a lot of effort for them to continue to reach out and get rejected over and over. And so if someone, if you're actually taking on someone's case and are saying, hey, I'm going to advocate for you, I'm going to fight for you. Most of the time, people are so grateful to actually have that support. Welcome back to the DEI podcast. I'm Max Gaston. On today's episode, we're revisiting another one of our favorite conversations from season one of the podcast, where I sit down with Anna McGinn and Jessa Weber, two of the law school's Bank of America Foundation fellows, to talk about exoneration justice. During our conversation, Anna, Jessa, and I talk about the systemic problems that have led to a backlog of wrongful convictions disproportionately impacting people of color and members of the LGBTQ community. We then discuss what anti-racist efforts look like to reduce the frequency of wrongful convictions on the front end, and how exoneration justice is helping create a fair and equitable justice system for everyone. Anna and Jessa also discuss the public interest path for students in law school, and how the Bank of America Foundation Fellowship is making public interest work after law school possible for more students. Here is my conversation with Anna McGinn and Jessa Weber. Anna and Jessa, welcome to the DEI podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Hello. So just to get us started off, and I'll ask this to you, Jessa, and then Anna, if you have any uh, thoughts, you can weigh in as well. What is exoneration justice and, and why is it important? So exoneration is removing somebody's wrongful conviction based on factual innocence which means that the conviction was obtained unconstitutionally and or actual innocence, meaning the defendant did not commit the crime. So that's exoneration. Um, and exoneration justice is not only the process of exonerating somebody, but providing the services necessary for their rehabilitation, both during the arduous and long exoneration process and also afterwards, which is normally when somebody is released from incarceration with little to no resources. So exoneration justice is an area where we find a lot of intersection with many of the, the constitutional and social justice problems that society faces nowadays. You know, whether that's prisoners' rights, voting rights, uh, racial community justice, immigration, it's kind of like the grand central station of um, social issues where any number of legal constitutional identity-based variables can exist for an innocent person who's been wrongfully convicted. And so I, I guess the variable that I want to start with is anti-racism and specifically the role of innocence work at the intersection of anti-racism efforts and the prison industrial complex. So the National Registry of Exonerations 2022 report on race and wrongful convictions in the United States found that Black Americans are seven times more likely than white Americans to be falsely convicted of serious crimes. 
the report found that even though black people are only 13.6% of the American population, they make up 53% of the over 3,000 exonerations listed in the National Exonerations Registry. It goes on to talk about how the racial disparity in wrongful convictions exists in varying degrees across all major categories, including murder, drug crimes, and sexual assault. And so obviously this racial disparity is hugely depressing, uh, but it's not exactly something new. You know, we've seen seemingly always known that there is a racial justice problem in the criminal justice system. And, you know, there are a number of factors that we can turn to to understand why that is. But from your perspectives, and I'll start with you, Anna, why do we have such a significant racial disparity in the proportion of wrongful convictions? And what are some of the factors that we can we can point to that help explain that disparity? Yeah, thanks. I think bias can infect investigations first and foremost. So statistically speaking, police misconduct is more common in exonerations of African-Americans, but bias can also impact other actors in the process as well. Prosecutors have nearly unlimited discretion in making charging decisions, and juries and judges can also be influenced by bias, which can in turn influence their interpretation of evidence and other critical decisions that can lead to wrongful convictions of innocent people. So racial bias can creep in at all stages, which leads to error. Also, people of color have more interactions with the police in general. This has been shown by statistics. And because more racial minorities go through the criminal legal system, mathematically, they're going to represent a larger percentage of wrongful convictions. So one example to illustrate this is that a Black man is 12 times more likely to be convicted wrongfully of a drug crime than a white man. That's 12 times. And historically, drug enforcement has targeted African-American communities and other communities of color and poor communities. So mathematically, the connection is significant as well. Jessa, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so going off of what Anna said, um, particularly about drug um, prosecutions and convictions. Um, in Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, she talks a lot about the war on drugs, um, which started in the 1980s and was essentially used to control Black Americans. In the 60s, um, the law and order movement arose from the civil rights movement. Therefore, the criminal justice system became essentially the new way to control people of color in the United States following the dismantling of the Jim Crow laws. Um, and since the 80s, the prison population has grown by 500% in America. So I guess based on her theory and my own observations, I would say that the disparities are intentional. I think a big part of the problem is the issue of minimum, mandatory minimums, um, and habitual offender statutes, such as the three strikes law, minimum sentencing, um, and higher sentences occur due to racial bias because uh, prosecutors and findings of fact, but also if someone is already embroiled in the criminal justice system, a finder of fact has no choice but to sentence somebody. 
a higher um, minimum sentence because of their previous involvement in the system. Yeah, I I agree with everything Jessa said. I also think we should examine the ways in which punishment plays out in the system as it exists, uh, especially in different parts of our country. Uh, we might also want to examine the history of the passage of the 13th Amendment and its connection with mass incarceration. One example that comes to mind is the Louisiana State Penitentiary, the largest maximum security prison in the country, and it's colloquially known as Angola after the slave plantation that formerly occupied the territory. Uh, images depicting the prison today, which you can go on Google and look it up, are really striking. They show predominantly Black inmates working in fields and white workers of the prisons on horses. Uh, this should give everyone pause and critically examine the ways in which incarceration actually looks like and is played out today for Black communities. What do y'all think the appetite is for these institutions to change? Because this is something I think that when it's in the conversation uh, for as long as it has been, some people start to experience a bit of fatigue. And you start to, I know at least in prosecutors' offices and police departments, see that fatigue sort of playing out. And do you think that we have, that people have the appetite for the changes that we're talking about? I do sometimes think that the dialogue has changed and shifted over the past couple years. It'll be interesting to see where policies land. Uh, but if you look at, you know, the, the shifting demographics of prosecutors and the progressive prosecutor movement, and also the criticism that's come from that, from different communities, I think everyone is sort of trying to figure out what the best solution is. But I'm hopeful that uh, as time moves on, there will be more of a consensus. I am hopeful. I also think exoneration rates are increasing now, at least. It seems like this is an issue that has been popularized by Brian Stevenson and the Innocence Project nationally. So I'm hopeful. I'm cautiously optimistic. Going off of that, um, the development of conviction integrity units has really exploded in the last 10 years since these really started. And I think a lot of that is because of the public awareness growing about the racial justice. Um, and of course, conviction integrity units exist within prosecutors' offices that are committed to remedying these issues. The American Civil Liberties Union found that one out of every three black boys born today can expect to go to prison in his lifetime. Uh, as can one of every six Latino boys, by comparison to one out of every 17 white boys who can expect to go to prison. The ACLU also found that the different incarceration rates aren't just limited to race, but that other marginalized groups are affected as well, including poor people, queer people, disabled people. Uh, you know, all of these groups are disproportionately incarcerated. And so it's clear that that the problem of wrongful conviction, although it impacts Black Americans the most, uh, according to the data, it's a problem that disproportionately impacts other minoritized groups as well, um, including low-income populations. And save for, 
I guess, income status or LGBT status, it doesn't seem to disproportionately impact white Americans who have a mid or high level of income. And so, so Anna, I'll ask you this first, but why is it that white people appear to experience wrongful convictions at a lower rate than members of these other groups? I mean, whether consciously or unintentionally, are we just more willing to invest time and resources to to confirm a white person's innocence over anyone else? Yeah, I, I think this is a really important question. Investigations, I think, tend to be sloppier when both victims and defendants are members of historically marginalized groups. If you remember, uh, one of the best indicators of capital punishment, whether a defendant receives the death penalty, is the race of the victim. So if it's a white victim, the defendant is more likely to be uh, convicted of, of the crime and sentenced to death. So that that also adds an element. It's not just the race of the defendant, but also the race of the victim. I think Im- implicit bias can certainly creep in when one is perceived as less important or more criminal, and that can lead to higher rates of error. Every aspect of an investigation can lead to tunnel vision and confirmation bias. If you perceive as a of a if you perceive a defendant as criminal, you're subject to confirmation bias before even beginning the investigation. And narratives of criminality are woven into the fabric of our country. Race is coded in criminality. And so investigators are filtering evidence through a lens that is that can taint the whole process. Um, so for example, if you watch videos of false confessions, which I know Jessa and myself have, uh, the interrogation can play out very differently depending on whether the interrogator perceives the individual as guilty or not. That criminal investigations may tend to be sloppier when no white person's life or freedom is at stake is likely a reason why many black and brown communities have diminished faith in law enforcement. And the fact that a person convicted of a crime is more likely to be sentenced to death if the victim is white sends a glaring message about the unintentional biases, which we all have, that are pervasive in society and in our justice system. In addition to the biases Anna described that can creep into every aspect of an investigation and cause error, Jessa explained how disproportionate resources given to prosecutors disproportionate budget allocations in prosecutor offices that can lead to underfunded crime investigation units, and a lack of funding for public defenders, all add to the disparity of wrongful convictions for members of marginalized groups. I think one of the biggest issues we have is um, the lack of quality representation um, for these groups. A lot of representation or quality representation depends on income. Um, in America, white cis people are the most likely to have wealth and public defenders offices receive a lot less funding than prosecutors offices. While prosecutors offices can rely on police for investigations, public defenders have to do their own investigative work and they have to hire their own experts. And without funding, there's not really the resources necessary to fight against the implicit bias that leads to wrongful convictions for um, these groups. 
And then investigative work, I think it's also complicated um, because when people are involved in the criminal justice system, such as witnesses, they might be considered to be less reliable. So you have a really, I guess, negative feedback loop where people are more likely to be wrongfully convicted or just convicted, receive higher sentences in general because of the representation they receive. I think also you mentioned police involvement in Professor Smith's race and policing seminar. We read a really interesting book. It's called Ghetto Side by Jill Leovi. And it offers a great example of the disparity in public resources that are used to prevent crime in America. Um, Leovi focuses on the years she spent embedded with the homicide unit in the Los, in the Los Angeles area which has some of the highest violence rates in the country. And she noted throughout the book how, while the homicide unit was severely underfunded, resources were consistently poured into like the white collar units that existed in the downtown areas, which were much safer. Um, of course, Leovi portrays the homicide she detect detectives that she works with as like very good cops who are really focused on getting positive results and justice for the victims. But of course, we know that not all police officers are worried about protecting communities and um, more policing can lead to more negative encounters with the criminal justice system than actual safety. Um, for example, in recent policing, we also did a deep dive into the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri is one of the most highly policed areas in the country. What do organizational efforts look like outside of the courtroom to help further the cause of exoneration, justice, and innocence? Yeah, this is a really great question. For the Great North Innocence Project, I think education for lawyers providing CLE credits is a very useful tool, but legislative efforts is probably the most significant one. Uh, improving our laws to prevent innocent convictions on the front end, as opposed to cleaning them up from the back end is really crucial. And my organization does a lot of this. Some legislative items that come to the top of my mind are, you know, ensuring that police departments use best practices for eyewitness identifications lengthening the statutes of limitations for innocence claims, ensuring all police interrogations are filmed. These are things that protect uh, the public and also police departments. Uh, relatedly, sometimes organizations like the Great North Innocence Project or other innocence organizations find that media can be a helpful tool. I. I think media can be kind of a double-edged sword at times. True crime podcasts, of which there are a lot of very legitimate concerns, has certainly brought heightened awareness to the issue of wrongful convictions. I think people are more attuned to the fact that wrongful convictions are a real thing. Uh, and I think that this can also lead to people of the public having a, a healthy skepticism of the system. And podcasts or media can reach a larger, a larger audience. So I think media outreach is another tool outside of the courtroom that can uh, aid in furthering the cause of exoneration justice. 
I want to turn to the idea that we have in the law of of being made whole. You know, when a person has had a wrong done to them, our aspiration is to restore them to a position where where they've been made whole again, despite everything that's happened. And so when we're talking about wrongful convictions, uh, you know, in most large American counties, the great majority of wrongfully convicted murder, murder defendants, for instance, will be black prisoners who've been ignored for 10, 20, sometimes 30 years or longer. And so they've clearly lost an incredible amount of time in their lives before even coming to this point where they want to look at the process of exoneration. The first question I would have, uh, and Jessa, maybe you can uh, take this one. I, how long does a typical exoneration take? So I think exonerations normally take years. It definitely depends on the avenue. But if you're working through an exoneration project or an innocence project, it's a real uphill battle because most often the prosecutor's office is going to be opposing relief. It can take years to really work through the court system, getting a new trial, getting an evidentiary hearing, seeing how the evidentiary hearing goes. If you're actually going to grant relief, possibly appealing if you don't get relief, um, all that can take years. And that's once you're actually at the litigation stage, the investigation stage of a wrongful conviction normally takes months, if not years on its own, just because of the size of the files that you're dealing with. I mean, it takes a long, long time to really go through police reports and try to remedy the issues that were made on the front end of um, these trials. I'm curious to know what the average temperament of, of an inmate who is looking at this process is when they're talking to their counsel. And let's say you've been in jail wrongfully for 15 years. And then you say, well, it's going to take years before we can even look at a possible um, exoneration in your case. Is the is the sentiment, well, it's been 15 years already. What's another five years? Or is it, when am I going to get out of here? I didn't do this. I think a lot of people are just so grateful to have somebody actually take them seriously. Um, at least that's been my experience. Obviously, people are extremely frustrated by the position that they're in. but. Most of the time, they've already applied to 10 innocence projects or CIUs or exoneration projects. And it takes a lot of effort for them to continue to reach out and get rejected over and over. And so if someone, if you're actually taking on someone's case and are saying, hey, I'm going to advocate for you, I'm going to fight for you. Most of the time, people are so grateful to actually have that support. Um, yeah, I think all of our clients are amazing and the human spirit is very resilient. I think that every day that our clients are in prison is an, is another day that they shouldn't be there. But it's also important for us to invest a significant amount of resources to ensure that our petition or our submission to the court is thorough and does not make it harder for subsequent attempts to be considered. So it's a balance between ensuring that your product is, is the best that it can be, which takes a lot of time, but also ensuring that it's submitted in a timely manner and gets the ball rolling. I'm really touched by something that you said, Jessa, when you were talking 
this idea that that people who know they are innocent have been maybe for the entire duration of their uh, incarceration working to try to get someone to listen to them. And in one way, it's incredibly disheartening to know that people are not being taken seriously and how they're being viewed is not how we would expect anybody outside of the prison system to be treated. But on the other hand, knowing that they never give up, what Anna was talking about when she said the human spirit, that idea of, I know that I don't belong, it should not be this way, I did not do this, and I'm not going to stop. Even after 20 years, I'm not going to stop. I mean, you talked about this a little bit, but what is your impression of, of, of these individuals who are, who are just so determined to prove their innocence um, in the face of uh, an institution that, for the most part, ignores and doesn't give them that respect? Yeah, so I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of people who have already been exonerated, and there's definitely a true fighting spirit in every exoneree I've met. And I've also heard over and over again that I guess in order for an exoneree to have that spirit, they have to have forgiveness, which I think is just incredible. Like, I mean, it's hard to obviously, you can't put yourself in the shoes of somebody who has spent like my entire life behind bars. Like I could never even fathom that. But I guess every exoneree who I've spoken to has said, well, there's a point of accepting that they're in that position. And then using all their energy to fight to see if someone will hear them and like get the justice that they deserve. Um, and when they come out, they uh, more often than not work so hard to improve the system so that other people are not wrongfully convicted or so they can support other exonerees that are coming out to help make them whole in ways that they weren't when they were, I guess, first um, released from incarceration. One thing that my coworker said, one of my my coworkers, he said that the system is done with these people. And we have a post-conviction system in the United States that has a very strong preference uh, in favor of finality over justice. And this is kind of speaks to the challenges facing innocence attorneys. Barriers to opening a new case are very high and it varies per state. The post-conviction landscape is a minefield of procedural hurdles, any one of which can be prohibitive in obtaining relief for a client, and many of which have absolutely nothing to do with guilt or innocence. So in Minnesota, for example, we have a very tough post-conviction statute that makes it very hard to bring new claims two years out, even after receiving new evidence or at the federal level, EDPA has made federal habeas virtually impossible to prevail in. You must show that a state court has gone completely off the rails in uh, not granting relief. So also some states incarcerate more of their population than others, leading to an increased need for innocence work that is sometimes unmet by smaller local chapters. So it's just, I mean, if you wanted to think of one of the most complicated and difficult systems to obtaining relief after you've been incarcerated, 
I think the United States system would be up there for for the most complicated and difficult to navigate. Yeah, I think that kind of goes off of what Anna said before about needing to balance the um, urgency of getting your client out of prison with needing to file something correctly because every single time um, a defendant files a motion for relief in some form, the barrier um, to obtaining relief gets higher because the standard of review gets stricter and stricter as you move through the system. By the time you're at a federal habeas appeal, there's a really low chance of your conviction being overturned. I mean, that's an incredibly distressing thing to hear, especially if you look at the what we were just talking about, folks who are going to be resilient and who are going to be working um, as much as they can to, to prove their innocence. But if they don't have a legal education, they don't know how to navigate this system on the side of advocating for themselves uh, without uh, without crossing in, improperly over the red tape. Uh, it seems like there can be a negative aspect to that that fight that some folks have, and maybe that itself can even end up shooting you in the foot. I think. The complication of navigating the post-conviction relief system is one key way where conviction integrity units like step up to meet the needs of those wrongfully convicted. Obviously, not every county is going to have an elected prosecutor who is progressive and interested in overturning wrongful convictions. But the standard of review at the CIUs that I've worked for has typically been needing newly discovered evidence in order to show that a conviction um, is like wrongful versus focusing on the finality of a conviction, which is what it um, is, I guess, the focus when you're moving through the court system. And so when we're looking at CIUs, are we talking about relatively new cases or are we talking about addressing the backlog or is it both? It's primarily the backlog of cases. and. Typically, a CIU, along with any sort of innocence project or exoneration clinic, is going to have a huge backlog of applications for people who have been incarcerated for many, many years. Um, unfortunately, that's another barrier to how long it takes to obtain innocence is these organizations are so overwhelmed with the number of people who are applying for or advocating for their innocence that it can take years to even get to reviewing somebody's application to begin with. There have been some like heartbreaking intakes where I've done where I've truly believed that somebody is innocent, but because of the county that they're in or the level of appeal they've gone through, it will just be impossible, at least for them, like right now for them to obtain relief. And because there are limited resources um, and you can't take on every case. We've had to turn these people away, which is absolutely heartbreaking. What are the instances where exoneration can happen in the first place, uh, where you could look at a case and you can look at a file and say, this is a case that we can take on? There are some trends that I notice. Uh, developments in science for some medical diagnoses or, um, for example, arson science has been a big one. Uh, some abusive head trauma cases for infant deaths. 
trends that you can look out for when you are reviewing a case that might bring up some red flags? Uh, maybe, you know, yeah, that that would be the main one that that we kind of start to look for when reviewing a case. Um, also, just the the crime and the claim in the first place. Uh, those are all things that we tend to look for at first. We have some awesome law students who do a lot of intake and examining this stuff. Um, we also might look at the amount of evidence that was presented at trial, whether or not there was a trial, or if there was a guilty plea, which despite maybe popular belief, a lot of innocent people do plead guilty, but that also might complicate things in terms of taking on a case. Newly discovered evidence is largely what overturning a conviction is based on. So the ability to have a witness recant, perhaps their testimony against a defendant, if they lied or perjured themselves at trial, um, looking at witnesses such as jailhouse informants, which are largely unreliable and often have received deals um, from prosecutors' offices to perjure themselves at trial. That can be like a big factor. Also looking at the players involved in a conviction, at least where the EJC takes cases out of, there's been a lot of exonerations already. So you can see which police officers or which prosecutors have worked on these cases and kind of know who could be a bad actor. It's the same thing in Wayne County where I worked at their conviction integrity unit. There's a thing called a Brady list of police officers. Those are police officers who have known to withhold exculpatory evidence in the past. And so when screening a applicant, you can look to see if there has been any, I guess, um, if one of those officers or prosecutors has participated in their case, that could be really helpful in deciding whether or not to take on a case. The EJC, which Jessa mentioned, is the Exoneration Justice Clinic at Notre Dame. NDEP began as a group of students who were interested in wrongful conviction and wanted to do something about it. And so they worked with um, attorney and adjunct professor Elliot Slosser to take on cases of where they believe that they could advocate for somebody's innocence. Over time, that turned into an actual externship. And now it's luckily, lucky enough to be a full clinic at Notre Dame, which means it has a lot of resources um, to actually advocate for people's innocence. I think there's like nine or 10 cases now that are ongoing, maybe even more since I left. But as opposed to having one or two clients from the beginning, now as a clinic, it has the funding to make real systemic change in Indiana, along with advocating for the relief for people who have been wrongfully convicted. The clinic engages in legislative reform efforts and also works to support people who are released from incarceration um, by providing them with wraparound services following exoneration. The first client that the Exoneration Justice Clinic took on was Andy Royer. Andy Royer, he was wrongfully convicted of murder in Elkhart, Indiana. He is mentally disabled and he was coerced into falsely confessing um, a murder by a very corrupt police officer, which resulted in him in him being wrongfully convicted for, I think, close to two decades. 
Anna and Jessa are the law school's Bank of America Foundation Fellows. The work they both do in exoneration justice is made possible by the fellowship, which funds graduates to work for two years at a city agency or nonprofit organization of their choice. And you're fully funded with a salary plus benefits for your work with that organization for two years. So essentially, you get to provide free labor to an organization that that really needs it while also doing work that is awesome. It's a great way to start your public interest career. Certainly, if you look on job postings, there are not many openings for uh, innocence lawyers, much less innocence lawyers right out of law school. And so, but for the generosity of benefactors to provide funding for this work, uh, law students, law, law student graduates would not be able to do this stuff. So it's a lot of really cool public interest work that folks can kind of design and figure out where you want to live and work in that area. I'm from Minnesota, so I knew I wanted to work work back at home, and, and this provided me with that opportunity to do so. Anna and Jessa both chose to work in exoneration justice to start their legal careers. Although exoneration is an area that is critically important and one which needs more attention, it's not always an area that gets the attention it deserves. So I wanted to understand what motivated them to work in exoneration justice. I came into Notre Dame knowing that I was really interested in criminal justice reform during my senior year of undergrad at the University of Michigan, Go Blue. Um, I took part in the Inside Out Prison Exchange Program, which allowed me to take a class about mass incarceration at a local state prison. It was a group of 10 undergraduate students and 10 prisoner students. This really highlighted, I guess, the need for criminal justice reform for me. So going into law school, I knew this was something I was wanting to get involved with and end up is one of, I guess, a few criminal justice student organizations at Notre Dame. So I started getting involved with NDEP as a first-year law student, and that ended with me being in the exoneration justice clinic for my second year and third year of law school, and also working at the Wayne County Conviction Integrity Unit over the summer between 2L and 3L. Essentially, I just completely fell in love with innocence work, and I knew that this was something I wanted to do following graduation. And I just feel very grateful because as Anna said, it's hard to break into the field of public interest without a lot of post-graduation experience. And so the Bank of America Foundation Fellowship is allowing me to gain experience in innocence work, which I can use to continue doing this work um, throughout my career. For me, I, I mean, it's kind of twofold. One, I find criminal law very interesting. I think it's in it's presents a lot of interesting questions about how we as a society want to treat others and the ethics of punishment. All of that stuff is very uh, intellectually stimulating to me. But beyond that, um I did an AmeriCorps year before going to Law school. I think Jessa, you did as well. Yeah, she yeah. did. Um, and that served as a very crucial 
kind of call to action for me. I worked for the Minneapolis Public Schools Truancy Program, Credit Retention and Recovery. And that I worked with a lot of students who might have been involved in um, some precursor to, you know, some juvenile justice programs, or they had parents who were incarcerated that I guess really focused my mind before going into law school and realizing that the law is an interesting avenue for providing people with relief, but can also cause serious disruption in individual lives um, and is not applied often with an even hand. And so going into law school, I knew that that was my interest. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I will say, I think that one of the most universal principles is that innocent people should not be in prison. And so perhaps I'm speaking out of turn here, but I think it's not hard to be interested in wanting to remedy some of the most serious problems in the criminal justice system, even if you're not interested in criminal law as as an intellectual pursuit. So for me, it just made sense. Um and followed from my interests and my desire to work in public interest as well. Many students come into law school wanting to go into public interest, but are over time lured away into other areas instead. Some of that is due to the attraction of working in big law and the higher compensation tied to private practice positions. It was interesting to hear from Anna and Jessa just what it takes, in their opinion, to remain committed to a career in public interest during and after law school. There are different reasons for that. You know, maybe the allure of going into private practice and the money certainly can be a component of that. Um, And maybe seeing the path that a majority of your classmates are taking that seems a lot more certain. I guess the question is, how do you remain committed to uh, public interest in law school when that's what you say you want to do coming in, given all these temptations that might pull you in different directions? It's definitely difficult to stay true to your passions when public interest is the path less traveled and is also much less lucrative. Um, there's a clear path when you want to go into big law. You do OCI. And then even before your second year of law school, you typically have a job lined up for after law school. Um, With public interest, it's a lot different. You're fighting to get an internship after your second year. Most likely that's not paid. And then following your third year, you don't typically have a stipend to do your bar prep. Um, So that can be difficult. And also you're having to fight to get a position. Well, a lot of your classmates are already employed prior to their 3L year. But I think in order to stay true to your passions, um, it's important to build strong connections with supportive professors and career advisors that are willing to hold you accountable and help you stay on track. Um, And also joining a public interest student organization, especially during the fall of your first year of law school that can provide a really great network of peers who are helping you to not feel so alone in the um, in the public interest path. Also, they can help you become exposed to mentorship and events, alumni networks, and various opportunities. I would say I joined Legal Voices for Children and Youth 
I was involved in that organization throughout my time in law school. So I was connected with uh, my peers who were also interested in providing some outreach to local children in the community. And that really grounded me. I think I realized as well with my prior experience in law school doing service work that this was something I wanted to pursue. Uh, you know, 1L summer, I worked for a judge. Both summers, I worked for a judge. I wanted to get some good experience in writing and and market myself with those skills uh, and really tried to take advantage of the opportunities that Notre Dame has uh, to serve others. That I think Notre Dame has such a wide array of opportunities to be involved in public interest, um, no matter where your focus lies. Like even starting with 1L um, fall, I participated in the Galilee program where I went to Chicago and I got to learn about a bunch of different public interest organizations in the city. And then moving on from that, obviously I was involved in the Notre Dame Exoneration Project and Exoneration Justice Clinic, but I also, I took part in Frontlines in America, which is part of the Mendoza College of Business, um, but it allows law students to also participate. And the Frontlines in America program allows you to consult with a nonprofit that is trying to develop its capacity over the course of a semester. And that was really a great experience. I also took part in the Appalachia externship over my third, my spring break during 3L year. Um, so even though I'm not necessarily interested in civil law, it was just a great experience to be able to see how other people live and the need for public interest services in a um, marginalized community. Given the challenges of breaking into public interest as a law student, Anna also talked about some resources that are available to help students find public interest jobs that are open to hiring interns and lawyers at the start of their public interest careers. The PSJD website is particularly useful. I think it's just psjd.org. And it is a website that posts all sorts of public interest jobs, government jobs, lawyer, uh, JD Advantage or JD like bar admission required jobs. I was checking that all the time. A lot of stuff was online during COVID as you know, since we were kind of in that weird time for for internships, um, I was very lucky to have support from my parents, and I ended up living at home during my summers because it is hard to to uh, obtain funding for these jobs. But it was worth it for me uh, to be pursuing an area of law that was interesting and fulfilling for me. I would love to hear from both of you what some of the key issues facing public interest attorneys are and how those can be addressed. Sure, I can I can take this one first. Um, man, this is tough. I'm struggling <laughs> with this right now. Salary is lower for public interest work. Uh, you know, friends who are in private firms are are making more money 
That's something that, as we talked about, scarcity of resources. In terms of mental health, I think that is a legitimate concern, and I'm trying to figure that out myself in terms of how to best strike a balance to ensure that I'm also well and able to provide services to people who really need them. And also making sure that, you know, I get enough sleep and I get get my three meals a day and stuff like that. Um, obviously, in terms of, of some of the tangible services, uh, there's certainly public interest loan forgiveness programs that can help offset the cost. And I think people certainly ought to take advantage of that. Um, but these are issues that I myself am trying to figure out. I certainly don't have perfect answer, though I will say that one thing kind of underlying all of this is that I am really fulfilled in what I'm doing and I would not trade it, any of the stress uh, for that, because I do feel very lucky to be able to go to work every day and get paid to help people. Um, it's just, it's it's a great it's a, it's a great place to be, all things considered. I definitely think um, money is the biggest issue with public interest. Um, I think this is a growth area for Notre Dame and just universities in general, which is being able to provide um, some support during the summers when, well, public interest jobs, which are necessary to establish yourself as someone interested in public interest and do that going forward after graduation. Those are necessary, but they don't pay. So I think Anna and I were both lucky enough to stay with our some our parents during the summers. Um, but that also limits you in the region where you can work. I think, again, we were both lucky enough to want to return home following graduation, Anna, to the Minneapolis area and me to Metro Detroit. But if I wanted to work in Chicago, doing public interest after law school, I think it would have been a real challenge for me to afford to live in Chicago while making um, no money during the summer. But as Anna said, it's it's worth it. I mean, it's an uphill battle to do public interest, um, but it's worth it for the fulfillment you get from being able to help people every day. Anna McGinn and Jessa Weber are Notre Dame Law School's Bank of America Foundation Fellows. Anna serves as a fellow with the Great North Innocence Project in Minnesota, and Jessa serves as a fellow with the Washtenaw County Prosecutor's Office Conviction Integrity and Expungement Unit in Michigan. Anna and Jessa, thank you for all that you do to serve the public, and thank you for joining us on the DEI podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Max, for having us. The DEI podcast at Notre Dame Law School is produced by Notre Dame Studios. Every episode, we sit down with important voices in law, culture, society, and business to talk about issues that touch all of us. If you liked what you heard today, become a subscriber and get notified every time we upload an episode. And tune in next time for another great conversation on issues that touch us all. Until then, take care.